All right, guys. So we're picking it up in chapter 7 in the Gospel of John. So we've been in this book for several months now. And if you remember right, at the beginning of John, it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And went on to say about Jesus that all things were created through him. And so Jesus, we believe, has this outsider perspective on earth. Because he is not from the earth, he is from heaven and was sent to earth. Which I think is really important for us because of the perspective we get from Jesus in this passage in particular. And that's because I think all of us have been somewhat shocked and alarmed about the condition of the world based on the data that we've been getting the past five or so years. So we've gone through a global pandemic. We've gone through political parties at war with each other, which has made its way to a lot of our Thanksgiving tables, for example. We have recently seen wars between Russia and Ukraine, between Hamas and Israel. And I think all of us, as we look at those things and many other things, are shocked and find ourselves saying, okay, I knew that the world had some bad people in it and I knew that some bad things were going on, but it seems to me like something is being revealed that is deeper than I knew was true. And yet, we still find people after the most recent mass shooting or racist tirade or whatever it is, saying to us that we should believe that people are basically good. And into that space, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, assessed the world. And he says to us, listen, you don't even know how bad it is. The world, according to Jesus, is lost. And so we're going to see three evidences of that in the text. First of all, off, we see that the world is hostile. Look with me at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 again. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So remember, Jesus has been going 
around this region, and he has been doing signs. He's been feeding 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. He's been turning water into wine. He's been raising people from the dead, and he's been healing people. And yet, he says to his brothers that he can't go down to Judea, can't go to Jerusalem, he can't go to this large feast, the Feast of the Booths, where God's rescue of the people of Israel from their wilderness wanderings into the promised land is being celebrated. He can't go there because, he says, the Jews are seeking to kill him. Now, why would they be seeking to kill him? Why would they want to get rid of somebody who is doing so much good? And was there something uniquely evil about the Jewish people? Is that what John is trying to say here, that they would kill Jesus? That's obviously not what the Bible is saying. There's no hint of anti-Semitism here at all. Because we sort of go through the passage and we see, okay, the Jews in general seeking to kill Jesus. He can't go down to Judea to this feast. But we also see that his own family is in opposition to him. So the text says he can't go down to Judea because he knows that he'll be killed if he does that. And his brothers are like, hey, Jesus, we got an idea. Why don't you go down to Judea? What are they doing? They're suggesting that Jesus put himself in danger. And John says that the reason that they're saying that is because they didn't even believe in him. And then Jesus makes a general statement. He says, it's not just the Jews It's not just his own family, but he says that the world hates him. And he gives us the reason why. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus' assessment of every human being, no matter what, your sex or your racial background or your religious background is, his assessment of you is, get this, you are deeply evil. Now, this is really interesting when it comes to this passage in particular, because the last thing you would have thought of when it came to the Jewish people was that they were deeply evil. They went to the equivalent of church on Sunday. They gave money to the church. They gathered in smaller groups. They served each other. They tried their best to be moral and upstanding people. And yet, Jesus says, these very people want to kill me, and I am God. So think about how evil that is. 
the very people who are saying that they are worshipers of God, that they are lovers of God, that they are servants of God, when they meet God in the flesh face to face, their desire is to get rid of him and to kill him. So veiled beneath the religious veneer, the moral veneer that all of us have, Jesus is saying there is a deep-seated animosity and hostility against God that resides in our heart so that if Jesus walked in the room, the natural person, the unconverted person, the person whose heart has not been changed toward him would seek to kill him because of his accurate assessment of where they were at. Jesus says, the world is not just bad, the world is hostile. Now we see this kind of vividly portrayed, we kind of understand and maybe relate to Jesus' brothers a little bit, like, Have you ever thought or imagined what it would be like to have Jesus as your brother? If this is his assessment of the world, then this would be his assessment about you. And so maybe we even sympathize with them a little bit. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about my own kids. I have five kids, ages 14 down to seven. And most recently, we went trick-or-treating and did all that, and they got candy and, and whatever. And so they like to kind of supervise each other's consumption of candy without supervising their own consumption of candy, right? And so it's kind of like one of the kids grabs a, a king-size Snicker bar out of their bag, and the other one might be like, Mom and Dad told you you can't have a king-size Snicker bar. You can only have a fun-sized Snicker bar, and, you know, there's all these little fights going along. And one of my reflections has been maybe the most difficult person to hear the truth from is your own sibling. And so we get it. From the brother's standpoint, they're like, been hearing their whole life from Mary and Joseph, like, why can't you be more like Jesus? And they've been hearing from Jesus, like, that's actually not pleasing to God. And instead of bowing to the truth of what he's saying, and as he's showing himself to the world, recognizing who he is, they would rather wipe him off the map than admit the truth about themselves. This is characteristic of all of us. We have a white-knuckle grip on our own goodness, on our own morality. We like to think well of ourselves. And when it comes to religion, if you're in a space like this, you probably like to think of yourself as having a a genuinely positive view of God. And Jesus says, 
Not so fast. There is, in each one of us, a deep hostility against God because his assessment of us is not good job, but you are evil. Okay, so there's deep hostility in the heart of each person in the world. It gets worse. Okay, the world is not just hostile according to God. The world is guilty. Okay, so Jesus makes his way down to the feast. And picking up in verse 14, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body whole? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, so Jesus is claiming to have been sent from God to the world. And he's testifying that the world's works are evil. He says this, if your intention were to do God's will, if you wanted to do what was right, then when you saw that what I was saying and what I was doing, you would believe in me. You can also see the truthfulness of what I'm saying because of what it's costing me. It's glorifying God, but it's ruining my reputation on the earth. So it's obvious that I'm not in it for myself, but the reason that I'm testifying to the truth is because I love you and I want to serve you by pointing out that you have this incurable disease. And then he tells us how to identify that we all have this incurable disease called sin. He says, look at the law of Moses. So here was the common Jewish perception of the law of Moses, which I think is also common in this day. They thought of the law as a ladder. So they thought like the Ten Commandments are like rungs on a ladder. And it's like, okay, you have no other gods before me. You'll keep the Sabbath. You won't covet, you won't murder, you won't lie, you won't commit adultery. It's kind of like, okay, if we don't do any of those things, we keep our noses clean, 
then we will climb our way to God, kind of one rung at a time. And so the common assessment that people made in that day and make in our day is kind of a comparative assessment. It's like, well, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I slip up a little bit, but I'm better than most people, and God kind of grades on a curve. And so I'm good enough to earn my way to God. He's pleased with me because of what I do. And Jesus says, no, the law of Moses was not meant to be a ladder. The law of Moses is an anvil. It's meant to crush human pride. You are not supposed to look at the laws and think, yep, I've kept my nose clean. Yep, I've kept the laws. Yep, I've done a good job. Jesus' summary of the law is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here's his assessment of all of us. Guilty as charged. You have not loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but have substituted lesser things for for him in your daily life so consistently and so thoroughly that you and I are rightly called idolaters. Because it's not what we say we worship that we actually worship. It's what we give our time, energy, money, and attention to that is the real object of our worship. And then he says, which of you has loved your neighbor as yourself, given the same time and attention and even obsession to other people that you have given to yourself so that the knee-jerk reaction of your heart is to care for them, their physical and spiritual needs, in the same way that you seek to care for your own. And Jesus says, we don't keep the law of Moses, not even close. And then he points out this contradiction specifically in the life of the Jews. See, the Jews are criticizing Jesus for something that he did several chapters ago in the Gospel of John. They're criticizing him for healing a man on the Sabbath. So they're saying, because you healed somebody on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, and healing is a lot of work, and so healing is off limits, and so you, they're saying to Jesus, God, have broken the law. And Jesus is saying, okay, let me point something out to you guys. If a boy is born on the Sabbath, on the eighth day, when he's supposed to be circumcised, you circumcise him. And circumcision takes some work. And so you're okay with doing a little bit of healing meaning obedience to God's law on the Sabbath, and yet I can't make a whole person's body well. 
And he points out to all of us this basic thing that we do, this basic contradiction at work in all of our lives. We focus on these very little things that we have done well, and we miss the big things that we ought to have been doing. We use the little things to justify ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like that person. Well, at least I do this. Well, at least I follow through on this. And then we allow our consciences to excuse us for the massive inconsistencies in our lives. And Jesus is saying, the reason that you're doing this is because you're trying to avoid feeling guilty. And the reason that you feel guilty is because you are guilty. So here's the way that the Apostle Paul summarizes what Jesus is also teaching here in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. I think this is a really great summary. He says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here's what God has always been aiming at in giving us the law. It's that our human pride would be crushed under the weight of God's commands so that we would see that we're guilty. We would become so desperate that we would come to God and say, I might be going through the motions. I might be a religious person outwardly, but what's true of me inwardly is I'm hostile and guilty. I'm running away from you. You see, there's two ways to be in rebellion against God. One is like really obvious. It's like the party lifestyle. I don't believe in the gospel. I'm an atheist. But no one really has to point that out because it's obvious. But there's another way to be running from God, and that is to put on a religious facade so that everybody thinks you're all in when inwardly that's not true at all. And so, we make up excuses. We justify our behavior in order to excuse and diminish our guilt. And we might even go far, so far as to say, because of that feeling, after a while of pretending, that we've given up on this whole thing and that we don't believe in God. Guys, I had a life-changing interaction with somebody when I was a sophomore in college, I was on a summer mission project in Ocean City, New Jersey. And one of the things that we were doing was we were going up and down the boardwalk of Ocean City, and we were engaging people in gospel conversations, just bringing up the gospel with random strangers. And I remember I was talking to this one guy, and he ended up saying to me in the conversation, that he did not believe in God. And I think it had been recently, maybe that week, I had read in 
the book of Romans, in the first chapter, that people deny the truth about God because of their guilt. In other words, atheism is a guilty conscience gone bad. And so people will say, I don't believe in God, but what's really happening to them internally is they feel guilty and they don't want to be accountable to God. So I was young and bold. And so I said to this guy, I said, do you know what I think is actually true? I think you're guilty. And so what you're saying to me right now is not a reflection of what you actually believe, but is a reflection of not wanting to be accountable to a holy God. This isn't what usually happens in this situation, but this guy looks at me. He stops. He just looks at me straight in the eyes. He goes, you're right. And I'm like, oh. Okay. This is not the way I was expecting this conversation to turn. He goes, you're right. And he goes, do you know what I did? I'm like, no, I don't. I don't know what you did. I got a little bit scared. He goes, I was in a gang in New York City and I killed somebody. And he goes, and ever since then, I have been saying that I'm an atheist because I don't want to be held accountable for that. Guys, that's an extreme example, but gives us a window into each one of our hearts. We don't want to admit that we're guilty because we're terrified that we will get what we deserve. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't just say that we are hostile and that we are guilty. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He sees beneath our guilt to our thirst. We see finally in the text that Jesus' assessment is that the world is thirsty. So why are we hostile? Why are we guilty? Because we are thirsty. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So it's not a mistake that Jesus was saying this on the last day of the Feast of Booths. One of the things that the Jews were celebrating during the Feast of the Booths was that in the wilderness, God had miraculously provided water for his people. Moses struck a rock and water gushed out and the people of Israel 
drank that water. And so they were celebrating that God had provided physical water for their ancestors, which made it possible for them to get into the promised land. And that was commemorated on the last day of the Feast of the Booze. And so Jesus stands up in that moment and he says to the people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, I want you to think about this. This crowd is filled with hostile and guilty people. People who want Jesus dead. And Jesus says to those people, I want to give you a drink. I want to quench your thirst. In other words, I don't want to hold your hostility and your guilt against you. I want to meet the deepest needs of your heart. And here's what you need. You need a new heart. You need the heart of stone that's inside of you that's causing all of your problems. That is the place where the disease is lodged, that you can do nothing about. I want to change that heart of stone back into a heart of flesh, a heart that beats with love for God. But that's not possible for you to do on your own. It's only possible for the Spirit of God to do in you. I want you to come and not drink of religious legalism and self-made righteousness, I want you to come and drink of new life. I want your life to be totally transformed by my spirit. Because you're not just guilty and hostile. The reason that you're running away from God is because you're thirsty and you naturally think that he's your enemy. And Jesus is saying, I'm not your enemy, I'm your friend. I want what's best for you. I'm not here to count your sin against you. I'm here to help you. And in their day, just like it is in our day, there are people who believe him, who take him at his word, who lay their weapons down and say, I want what you're offering, King Jesus. And then there are some who stay in the place of their hostility. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel. God turns hostility and guilt into salvation. These very same people just a short time later, will yell out, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus, although he has all the power in the universe to keep that from happening, will let it happen. He would die. Now, why would he die when he could have avoided it and when he did nothing wrong? He was dying for the people who were killing him. 
And as they're killing him, as he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus dies. He rises from death. He's on the earth for 40 days. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then he gives his spirit to his people. He quenches their thirst, changes them from the inside out. And one of those people, Peter, becomes a preacher. And this is what Peter says to the very people who killed Jesus. Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, then I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. He says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So here's what happened. Their hostility resulted in the death of Jesus. Peter says, you killed the author of life. You murdered Jesus. And then he says, repent and turn that times of refreshing may come in the presence of God. Here's the beauty of the gospel. God turns his enemies into his friends by allowing them to kill his only son and then his son rising from death without any animosity, without any anger, without holding anything against you and offering you life. His assessment of the world is worse than anyone else's assessment of the world. And his love rises above our hatred. And so I'm asking you simply, if you're a religious person whose life has not been transformed inside out, and you have hostility against God to lay down your weapons, to give your life to Jesus. If you're running away from Jesus, angry at him, thinking that he's out to get you because he says that you're guilty, lay down your weapons. You sin and rebel against your crucified Savior. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He's calling you home. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so different when somebody is hostile against me or angry at me. I, I see in myself a tendency to react against them to start to have animosity in my heart toward them, maybe even to, to get into bitterness or, or hatred. But you are not like us. 
you are love. And so I pray for that person who under that veneer has been hostile, that you would allow them by your spirit to put their weapons down. To see that you do not have an agenda to condemn them, but in order that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.